Welcome back to the 32nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today is election day. And today we're doing something a little bit different. Normally I record these podcasts early in the morning, lots of different news segments curated with some sort of list or talking points to help me, you know, stay on topic for the most part. But since it's election day, we're doing something a little bit different. Tonight, I'm sitting down. I do have two articles that, you know, give a little bit of insight into how the current system is, what this election may look like, or at least what everything may look like tonight before we see the results tomorrow. And then I also have up in front of me a curated list of important elections. So I got some of the governor's races, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, New York, and then I have uh, state Senate races in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, you know, Fetterman, Oz, Warnock, Walker, and Kelly and Masters, some of these bigger ones. I'm not going to focus on New Hampshire, Nevada. Those are a little bit far out there. And then my home state, I have all of the House elections up here. And actually, as I'm talking, the exit polls and these different statistics of counting votes, they're starting to come in. And we have a nice variety here in the first, fourth, sorry, the first, second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh, ninth, and tenth. All of those districts have Republicans leading, some by small margins, some by larger margins. Uh, And if for some reason you're interested, I'm in the tenth district where Chow and Wexton are currently going to battle it out. And right now, Chow is ahead by about 5 percentage points, 52.8 to Wexton's 47. And, you know, obviously very early, and I'll probably come back to these regularly because everything's still coming in. And I will make one last note of where everybody stands at the end so that you at least have some idea of what's going on. And I know you'll be listening to this tomorrow morning, so it doesn't necessarily tell you anything because things can change overnight. And that's one of the main things I wanted to bring up and and talk about during this podcast is what people are calling or for the last few years has been called the red mirage, which is the idea that in the course of election night, we see a lot of votes coming in for Republicans. And then as people go to bed and things are tallied up overnight, then you kind of see a shift towards the Democrats. And there have been different theories proposed for this. Maybe Democrats get out a little bit later and the Republicans get out early in the morning. But the a lot of talk has come about the mail-in ballots, which in certain states like Pennsylvania are, are counted last. And it really it can be dis, disheartening to some Republicans when they see, oh, yeah, I'm going to bed with this big lead. I think we're going to win. I don't I don't see us losing this one. And they wake up and it's either extremely close or they've outright lost. And it, it kind of makes Republicans wonder, is there any fishy business going on? And I think that though, you know, there are rational explanations for it, would that not be a question you have if you went to bed with two roosters and you knew they were both going to lay eggs and then you woke up the next morning and only one of them had laid eggs and you see a few things that look suspicious, like maybe some of the eggshells are cracked or 
maybe it looks like something got into the hen house, then, you know, you might be like, oh, well, that seems a little bit odd. Why did something go wrong here? I, I knew I was going to get my two eggs, and it looks like something came and grabbed them, even though I wasn't up. I wasn't awake. I wasn't actually there watching the egg all night. In this case, to drop the analogy, I wasn't there watching the ballots all night. I don't know if everything was done completely up to spec. Then it kind of causes this idea that there could be something wrong or there could be some sort of manipulation. And though this has been disproven many a times by many different documentaries, there have been other documentaries that have come out and said, no, there are legitimate concerns about the election. And one of those that I have, and this isn't saying that it's causing voter fraud or any manipulation on any part of any party, but one concern I have with current election systems, especially in states like Pennsylvania or in California, even though they've done a good job at reforming their uh, policies, I find it really interesting that mail-in ballots get counted not only last, but it's okay if they get sent in and do not arrive before the day of the election. They can rely, As long as they were sent beforehand, as long as they are postmarked from a date before the election, then they can be counted afterwards. And this sort of, oh, we can wait until the last second, we can take these votes into account, we're going to hold everything up, we're going to make sure that we get everybody's votes, but it's going to cause us to give the results a week late. It really builds the tension, and it makes these races much more divisive than they need to be. If people have their results the day of or the day after, then they're less likely to be angry, unsure, fearful, no matter what side wins. At least you know, if you're the losing side, that you lost, and it's not oh, well, there could be something happening, and then you really get your hopes up, and then when you don't win on that fifth day of waiting, then all that anxiety that's built up, or, and let's be clear, I don't know if you should necessarily be so anxious about who wins your election, and if you are, then I just want you to remember something that my history teacher told me in 2016, when Donald Trump won. At the time, I was very, very against Donald Trump, and I went to bed, and it looked like he was losing. And then I woke up. My mom said, he won. And I just hung my head low, and I, was, I said to myself, what is going to happen to us? What's going to happen to the U.S.? And I came in to history class that day, and my teacher said, just remember, nothing in your day-to-day -day life, for the most part, is going to change. You're still going to be able to walk around. You're still going to be able to say what you want to say. You're still going to be able to Snapchat your friends, Instagram, any going-ons in your life. You're still going to be able to go on Facebook. You're still going to be able to buy the commodities that you want. And it really it took a while to sink in, but he was right. Even though at that point in my life, I was not okay with the Donald Trump presidency, I, I took a step back over the next few months and realized, wow, no, this... This didn't affect my life as much as I thought it did. These congressmen and women are practically incompetent. They, they said they were going to do all these big things when they got in there, but then they weren't able to do half the stuff they said they would. And whether you agree with what they want to do or not agree with what they want to do, keep that in mind. Don't become so invested that you get strung up, anxious, that you're so willing to 
go into the Capitol and do something that is horrendous or in the moment may be very ill-advised. And that's the thing. We don't want to become so caught up in these political elections. If you want to get caught up in your football team, I understand. There's a certain amount of connection you have with them. And if they get if they lose, you can you can be angry, you can be sad, and if they win, you can be happy, elated. But at the end of the day, it's still a game. And at the end of the day, this is just an election. There will be another one in two years, another one two years after that. It's not the end of the democracy. Like people, Democrats on one side are saying, if you put in certain people, it's the end of the democracy. It's We're no longer going to have democratic rule after this. And then some people on the right are saying, these people are taking us towards a socialist regime or some of their uh, draconian lockdown policies, their authoritarians. This kind of rhetoric always comes out during election season because they want to demonize the other side. And you can't let yourself get caught up in those kind of talking points. At the end of the day, it is not the end of democracy if either side wins. We here, we the people, are still able to keep our representatives accountable. And it may feel like sometimes we don't have that ability, but remember... There are, what, 380 million of us, and right now the total count for senators is 100. For the House, I believe it's about 456 or so, plus all the bureaucrats. Even then, what, the bureaucrats in Washington make up a million? We still have the ability to impose our will because we are larger we have a large voice if we come together if we think that the government is doing us wrong collectively then we can come together and we can make our voices heard and we have the ability to change things so like i said don't become so caught up in this idea that oh if one candidate wins if the republicans sweep if the democrats sweep it's the end of democracy don't get caught up in this and you know i know i've been all over the place talking about the red mirage talking about don't get caught up in the end of democracy or talking about certain policies in Pennsylvania. But I just want to, you know, make sure that I'm getting my ideas out there for this one because on election night, a lot of these topics, or at least during election season, a lot of these topics are brought up, and I think that I haven't necessarily addressed them as much as I wanted to, and I think this is the best time to do so. So at the third of the way mark, we'll go through some current results. Right now in Georgia, Warnock is up 62 to 38 over Walker. In Virginia House 1, Whitman, the Republican, is up 71. Um, Virginia House 2, Kiggins, is at 58. That puts him about 14 points ahead. In House Virginia House 3, Scott is 15 points ahead. House four, uh, McEachin is, wow, 50, practically, well, more like 48 points ahead of Benjamin. That's the Democrat. Uh, House five, Good over Thornburg is, uh, Good's a Republican. He's an incumbent. He's up about 20% right now in House six. Klein, also an incumbent, Republican. He is up by 46%. And then remember that uh, key race that I was talking about in the Virginia 7th, Vega versus Spanberger. 
Spanberger is the incumbent here, a moderate Democrat in a very Democratic district. And currently, she is about 25 points behind Vega. So we'll see how this one develops. Uh, remember, the talk of the Red Mirage, a lot of these areas happen to be places where Republicans get out and vote, or maybe the Democrats decided to absentee vote or mail-in vote. So these results can shift over time. Don't get, become too attached to them. It is interesting, though, in Virginia House 9, Griffith, the incumbent, is already the projected winner with 18,000 votes. Currently, they are at 82.6% compared to their opponent's 161 so we already have a, uh, not a locked in, but a projected voter in the 9th district, which is interesting. I did not expect to see something that early coming in here in Virginia. In uh, the 8th district, Beyer, the incumbent, a Democrat, is up about 50 points ahead of Lipsman. Uh, another key race, which is another one I highlighted, Chow versus Wexton, the area where I live, uh, Wexton has closed the gap a little bit here. They're within one percentage point of one another. Wexton is the incumbent. Both of them have about 18,000 votes. So that one's tightened up just in the span of time that I'm talking. Oh, Chow just took a little bit of a lead here. I feel, I feel like I'm a, a sports commentator. Oh, Chow's breaking out. You can see him going for the lead. He's trotting down the long stretch. Like... <laughs> I'm treating this like it's some sort of game. I guess I may be one of the only people that is genuinely happy or at least loves politics enough to sit here and act like it's an engaging thing, watching poll numbers go up and down. Uh, so then in House 11, uh, Virginia House uh, 11th District, Connolly, who is an incumbent, is a staggering 69.2%. And his opponent, who is a Republican, Malaise, is 30.7. So he, he could be walking away with this one. It's not as large as the gap is with the Griffith election that's already projected to have a winner. But, you know, keep your eyes on that one. Now, here's a, the interesting governor's races. So Arizona and New York haven't closed yet, but Florida and Georgia both have. Uh, they sorry they started closing their polls so we have a lot of votes coming in and goodness gracious Florida I don't know what they're doing actually I do know what they're doing and we will talk about it once I go through these results but they already have wow over four million votes in that they've already counted DeSantis is ahead fifty five point seven to Chris who's forty three point six and DeSantis has about two and a half million and Chris has close to two million votes. So, you know, they're obviously doing something right there in order to get these votes in so quickly. And then we have Abrams and Kemp in Georgia and Hazel, who has a 0.5% of the votes, which is great to see an independent candidate, you know, holding their own compared to Abrams, 56% and Kemp's 434 but, you know, Hazel maybe appeals to people on both sides, maybe peels some people away from Kemp and Abrams. Maybe it won't be a big deal. Well, it will be interesting to see the breakdown of that when everything's said and done and people who voted for Hazel are asked, who would you have voted for if Hazel wasn't in? It'll be interesting to see because I think that one's going to be closer than people are actually predicting. 
Uh, a lot of the pundits I've listened to on the left say, oh, Abrams could win this one handily. She's really been out there. She's made a few blunders uh, on the debate stage and on the campaign trail, and Kemp really has the support of the sheriffs. But she has a, a strong message on certain social justice issues, abortion. So uh, a lot of the pundits on the left are saying she has a good chance of winning. And a lot of the Republicans, their pundits are saying, no, Kemp as the incumbent and also being less radical than Abrams has a great chance of winning. Right now, he is trailing behind by about 12 percentage points. So we'll see how that one closes up. So those are our governor and house races. Oh, we have two more projected winners in Virginia. Uh, House District 1, Whitman, with 66.8%, is projected to win the 1st District. And the 4th District, uh, McEachin, a Democrat, has 71.5% of the vote currently, and he is also a projected winner. So it's good to see Virginia coming in with early tallies. These are not necessarily the largest districts in the world, so... You know, it's a little bit easier. Let's go on to our Senate race. So we only have one here, Warnock versus Walker. Warnock's sitting at around 60%, while Walker's sitting around 40%, and Oliver's sitting around one5 I know that math doesn't add up exactly, uh, but Warnock is a little bit lower than 60 Walker's a little bit lower than 40 So it's not as tight as people thought it may be, and... With a lot of this talk of a red mirage where mail-in votes will be counted last and those tend to be Democrat, at this point it appears that Warnock's going to pull it out, but we have a long night of counting to come, so we'll see. And there's uh, no word from Arizona or from Pennsylvania. So, what I wanted to talk about with Florida, there's a very poignant topic when it comes to the election system in the United States, which is the, with the introduction of a more robust mail-in voting system and because of the pandemic where we extended the dates on which you can vote or the absentee dates that you can vote, there have been a, a lot of holdups and a lot of challenges when it comes to counting these votes in a very quick fashion. And a lot of people on the right are pointing to Florida, and they're saying, look at what Florida's doing. For the most part, over the last two years, maybe four, because in 2000, let's go back to 2000, when they had the worst, and I repeat, the worst election system that caused the big debacle between Bush and Al Gore, and they've really changed and addressed the election system, and they've made it a lot more quick. And why I think this is important that you have a quick decision is, one, it allows, if there needs to be a runoff race, if you're able to tally those votes very quickly, it allows that runoff race to be done extremely fast so we don't have a situation where we don't know if we're going to have the proper electors to confirm the presidential election like we had last time where it was up in the air if the Georgia race would finish in time to be able to actually send electors to the state, uh, the federal government in order to confirm Joe Biden as president. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily quite that simple. They were going to be able to do it, but there were still questions of how legitimate it would be if all the votes in Georgia weren't properly tallied at that point. But the other aspect of it is people have more confidence in 
the results if it's done quickly. And what I mean by that is not like, oh, immediately, oh, look at that, Rubio just won out of nowhere. That, that's a little bit suspicious. But if you're spending an entire week constantly recounting ballots and, oh, we found some more for Republicans or we found some more for Democrats. Oh, look at this. We missed this pile or we have to discard these. With more time comes more doubt. And it allows people to speculate, come up with conspiracy theories and let the ideas fester. And when you have a system that can be done in practically one day, like Florida, it really ensures that the voters have faith in the election, the results. And for the people that won, yes, we won quick, decided, easy. For the people that lost, like I said earlier, it doesn't build up this anxiety. It doesn't allow them to build up those conspiracy theories or those kind of remarks that would be considered election denying. I don't like using that term because it's overused by both sides and both sides are accusing the other of being electioneers deniers if they lose during this race. But it also gives them time, the losers, to really process. They can say, okay, you know what? We lost. It gives them a little bit more time to process. They can move on with their lives and keep on rolling. And at the end of the day, it's sad that we have to say that. It's sad that so people, so many people have become so invested in these elections and that if their candidate loses, they go and cry. I personally know some Democrats who cried when Hillary lost, and I know some Trump people who, let's just say they didn't cry, but they may have punched a, a few walls when he lost in 2020. And it, it's sad to see these kind of reactions out of people, that they've become so invested in these political races that at the end of the day may not even affect them. Like certain people looking at results coming out of Arizona or Nevada, they they get really emotionally bent over about these sort of things. And they're like, oh, Carrie Lake is winning for going to win. Arizona is projected to win Arizona. I can't believe it. I can't stand for that. I'm like, I could understand your argument if you were talking about the Arizona Senate, you know, the senators from Arizona, because that could directly affect you to some degree on the federal policy if there's someone that doesn't have the same values as you and they get in and they're that one vote that is needed to pass legislation that you don't agree with. I could see how you would be invested enough to be sad about that but not crying. But when it comes to like gubernatorial races, at the end of the day, if you don't live in Arizona, it's not going to affect you as much as you think. And people have become way, way too caught up in this idea. All right, so I, I'll pull out a few quotes here at the end, but I do want to take uh, another second, and this time I pulled up key races for the Senate. So we only have a few that are coming in right now. I already discussed Warnock and Walker in Georgia. Walker's moved up by about three percentage points. Uh, another key race in Florida, Rubio versus Demings. Rubio is the incumbent Republican. He's currently head by 10 percentage points, 54 to 44. Nothing out of Nevada yet. New Hampshire, where Baldick really was throwing people off and people started, the Republicans started funding his campaign a little bit more in New Hampshire, thinking that he actually may have a chance of winning. He's coming in with only about 33% right now compared to Hassan's 
65%. So I don't see that one flipping Republican, like some people said. Now, an interesting one in North Carolina, Bud versus Beasley, Beasley being the Democrat, Bud being the Republican. Beasley's at 57.5 and Bud's at 40.8. And Democrats were saying that this was not a lock-in, and a lot of Republicans said this is 100% a lock-in for the Republicans. And it's interesting to see these early votes coming in not in the favor of Republicans. So maybe they should have put a little bit of extra funding into that race. Then again... It's very early on. Things can flip. I'm not trying to say that, oh, if it flips, something something fishy is happening. Not saying any of that. I just think it's interesting that he's not uh, having such a large lead considering how much money they chose to steer away from North Carolina. Uh, Ohio, another interesting one where J.D. Vance in polling this morning from Trafalgar was up by 10%. Uh, he's, <laughs> which is really interesting. When I say polling, opinion polling about who they are voting for and who they think is going to win. Uh, Ryan right now is up by 37%. He's at 68.2 compared to J.D. Vance's 31.8. That's another race that was not necessarily a toss-up. A lot of Republicans have that one locked in. So we'll see how that one evolves. And those are all the East Coast states that are just now closing reporting. Probably here in the next 15 minutes, we'll get our second wave with the central time zone closing. And I don't necessarily think we'll be able to get to those. But, you know, if I go a little bit long, maybe we'll stay on and see how those start coming in. Uh, Also interesting on the map here, though they don't have the breakdown because it's not a key race on the map here, they're showing Kentucky, Indiana, Florida and South Carolina, all as leaning Republicans at this point. And the highlight here on CNN, Republicans need one Democratic seat to gain control of the Senate. So we'll, we'll see how that one pans out. And what I do think is another point is a lot of people said, oh, we're, we're going to have a Republican, we're going to have a red wave. And a lot of other people on the Democratic side said, well, if it's only 20 people in the House or one changing the amount of senators by one and having 51 Republicans and 49 Democrats and only having 20 more Republicans in the House, that's not necessarily a wave. But remember, the presidential election, the 2020 elections, the Republicans showed up in big numbers in the House and they're at uh, for only being the minority, they're at a, a pretty large number. I believe it's somewhere around a hundred and eighty-eight. Yeah, that's the number. It's a hundred and eighty-eight uh, current seats held by Republicans. So all they need, all they really need, is about twenty to thirty seats, and they've locked in a, a pretty good majority here, and. Going forward, they can build on that in the next election. So we may see a solid streak of Republicans here for the for the next few years. So looking at these House races, I'll go to the key races here. Let's see if we have any East Coast results in yet. Uh, North Carolina is going in favor of Nichols, 61.6 to 38.4. Uh, Ohio is a there's a nice tight one between Skies and Gilbert. They're sitting about fifty each. Uh, 
And then races favoring Democrats. We have one between Burns and Kushner in North uh, in New Hampshire, and it's actually 50-50 split right now. So we'll see how that one pans out. I don't see New Hampshire turning red anytime soon, but there may be some gains to be made there. In Georgia, between Christian and McCormick, it's about a 50-50 split. Between Lee and Kuhn in Florida, Lee is leading by about 14 points. Another one that just popped up from the 27th district in Florida, Salazar versus Tedito. He is, Salazar is leading by about 20. So it looks like it's either in favor of Republicans, like this one, Kiggins versus Laura in Virginia, House, the second one, the second district. He is leading by about 17. So it appears it's either a dead even race or the Republicans are leading so far. And then, you know what? I'll pull up the governor stats. Why not just go through it? Not necessarily looking at the key races, but looking at all of them. So we have DeSantis still ahead by nearly 14 points. Abrams, Kemp has closed the gap to only about seven points. Oh, that's that might be a little bit scary for Abrams to see. Hazel has not moved. Our, our favorable third party, let's go. Stick into that solid 0.5%. You're making such a big difference, Hazel. I, I promise it will be worth it. It will be worth it. You'll go down in the history books as the guy that got 0.5. Um, oh, yeah. So nothing's really changed on any of the governor's election. And a lot of them aren't necessarily on the East Coast, so... I want to see what happens with New York when those start to come in because a lot of people have been saying that Zeldin has a chance of beating Hochul with some of her dismissive comments on crime and not necessarily wanting to debate Zeldin or at least saying that she wasn't going to initially. So we'll see how all those come out. And I'll just close on one or two quotes, one talking about the red mirage and another one talking about Florida's voting system. So in 2022, day of returns in key states appeared to favor Republicans while it took days to count mail-in ballots that helped Democrats over the top. Quote, it is also possible Democrats could lose control of one or both chambers of Congress, even after all mail-in ballots are counted. Essentially, the public understanding is that it could be days or weeks until final results are known. End quote. And there's one more from this Axios article that I really liked and I want to highlight for you. Quote, Democrat John Fetterman, running against Mehmet Oz, released a memo on, memo on Monday saying Republicans are already laying the groundwork to potentially spread false conspiracy theories about the likely red mirage of val- ballot processing in Pennsylvania. End quote. At Oz's campaign did not respond to requests for comment, though his campaign had previously said he will accept the results of the election. And this is what I was getting to earlier, which is every single side is claiming that the other side is going to say that the election was stolen. Or they're saying that, oh, these guys, they've been claiming that the election is going to be stolen or that's an unfair election. Both sides are doing it at this point. And this is not a healthy discourse. And honestly, I thought with Joe Biden winning in 2020, and the Democrats coming back into power in the House and in the Senate, those a small minority, a very thin one, 
uh, sorry, a very thin majority with Kamala Harris at the helm in the Senate. I thought that all this conversation would be over, but no. The the media is just too caught up on this narrative. They're trying to scare people, and the politicians are caught up on this narrative because then they can claim that they justly won because there was some sort of corruption involved. So, And it keeps their people riled up, and it makes sure that their base still supports them the next time that they run for office. So I think it's sad that we still have these type of conversations but it is what it is. Hopefully, over the next few years, with a new generation coming into politics, they'll finally call out the BS and say, no, no, okay? At the end of the day, the election results are what they are, and we trust the election system. And maybe we can start, re- you know, reforming some things like Florida has over the last 20 years to get results back quicker and to limit the amount of extra time that is provided for mail-in ballots and then maybe it can reaffirm some of the faith in the system that we have. Uh, and speaking of reaffirming that faith and possibly reforming some of the process, I have a quote here that talks about the slow vote counting system from the National Review. Quote, there is no single solution to the slow vote counting. Pre-canvassing is one. Additionally, courts should be barred from extending the deadline to submit ballots absent truly catastrophic circumstances, end quote. And they're referring to a situation maybe like the pandemic, which could be argued that there was justification for allowing there to be an extended mail-in voting time period. But now that we're past that, we should probably move on from it. That's what the National Review is getting at with that one. Quote, states should replace incompetent local election officials and adequately fund jurisdictions that need more help getting votes counted quickly, end quote. That, that's an obvious point. Get rid of the incompetent people, but we've been saying it for years and it has not happened. Quote, voter registration should be closed far enough ahead of election day to ensure that every polling place has up-to-date voter rolls and Congress could impose more standardized on the base and uh, across-the-board voting standards, end quote. And I think that last one is a little bit scary. We don't want Congress getting too involved in elections. The Constitution sets the date of these elections, but it tells the states that they are the ones deciding how they can go about their elections, and I don't think the federal government should get too involved. That's just my personal opinion where I kind of disagree with the national review here. All right, so what I actually decided while I was doing those quotes is I'll run through the key races that I have selected again. And then what I'm going to do is record a, another segment. I'll jump right back in at around 9 p.m. when we have two more uh, ballot locations in the central region and in the western region, region closing. And I'll give a little bit of the breakdown of those as well as some of the more eastern states. So... Let's go back through my election. Let's go to my dashboard here. So, looking at the... Come on, CNN, work with me here. There we go. Looking at the Senate race, Warnock is still ahead by 14. Virginia has confirmed... Wow. They have, so, I say confirmed. CNN has a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 five projected winners already, uh, two of which are Democrats, three of which are Republicans. Wow, I didn't see that one coming. 
the two really key races that I was looking at in Virginia, Vega versus Spanberger. Uh, Vega, is, the Republican candidate, is ahead by 13 points right now, nearly 18,000 votes. And in the 10th district, wow, Wexton has overcome Chow, looking at 52.5% uh, to 47.4%. So that means Wexton has about a 7,000 voter lead. So that one flipped in the time that we were talking. Kemp is still closing the gap on Abrams in Georgia. DeSantis is still 15 points ahead of Christ, and nothing has come in from New York, and obviously not from Arizona. They're not going to close their polls here for a while. All right. For you, it will just be a second when I'm jumping back in, but for me, it will be about an hour, so I will see you then. Oh, wow, look at that. We're back. <laughs> All right, so... It's actually been about two hours, and I wanted to do that so we could actually get the mid-central uh, time zone, the western time zone, as well as a little bit of the opening from the western time zone. So it is a little bit later. Uh, what we can report on now, Arizona, the Senate race between Kelly and Masters. It's not seeming to be a close one. We're looking at about a 15-point lead for Kelly. In Georgia, it has reversed. Walker is ahead of Warnock by about half a percentage point or so. Probably going to go to a runoff, so we'll see how that ends up being. Oz has closed the gap to about four points at this point, but it does seem that Fetterman's probably going to win this one with about 56% of the vote in. And remember, a lot of their later votes are going to be mail-in ballots because they count them last, which you would assume go in the favor of Fetterman, if not because Democrats are more likely to vote via mail-in ballot, but also because a lot of those mail-in ballots happened before the debate where Oz totally destroyed Fetterman, or at least Fetterman showed that he is not in best health. So speaking of the House 2, the district, second district in Virginia that I spoke of Aurea, uh, earlier where Kiggins had lost, it is actually reversed, and CNN now projects Kiggins to win. Uh, there have been a lot more interesting developments. The 3rd District, 4th District, 6th District have all come in uh, and have projected winners in Virginia. The 7th District that we were looking at earlier, I had looked at it while I was away for a second, and Vega was ahead by about two points. Spanberger has come back with a probably four-point lead, and CNN has locked her in as the projected winner. The 10th District one that I was looking at very closely, because that's obviously where I'm from, Wexton has shored things up, and we're looking at about a six-point lead. They also, at CNN, are calling him the projected winner. So, you know, we have four or five Virginia Republicans and six Virginia Democrats winning. Now we have DeSantis, projected winner. No one's surprised about that one. Uh, Kemp has made huge gains on Abrams. Now he is leading by nine points, which is a, a big reversal from the last time we were talking about it. Arizona is not as tight as some would have predicted. Lake is down by about 10 points at 45%. And New York, when I said earlier that it could be close, at this point it doesn't seem to be at all. Hochul and Zeldin 
they're about 30 points apart. Hochul is on top, no doubt. Now that's looking through the races I'm following. We can go to the main page here and go to some of the other Senate races just so you have an idea of what's going on. So if we're looking at our key races here, Colorado seems to be locked in for Bennett. He's up by 15 points, and CNN says that he is the likely winner. Rubio has come out on top in Florida. Iowa is a tight race right now. About five percentage points ahead is Grassley, the incumbent. Uh, Nevada has not started reporting yet. Ohio actually has Vance on top of Ryan now, which we didn't see coming, or at least I didn't see coming. Ryan seemed to have a really high early lead. Bud has also come up over Beasley since the last time I checked when I was away for that hour. Baldick has not closed the gap in New Hampshire. And Washington has not started reporting, neither has Utah. And lastly, the race between Barnes and Johnson in Wisconsin is a lot closer than people think. Johnson's actually down by about one and one and a half percentage points. So that one was one that was seen as kind of locked up for the Republicans. So we'll see how that comes out. All right. The House ones are a little bit too intricate. There's too much information there. I talked about the main ones that I think are important. Let's go to the other governor elections. We already went over Florida, Arizona, uh, Maine coming in heavily blue. Uh, Bills is winning by about 15 percentage points. We went over Georgia, Kansas. Maryland, Moore has come out on top by a pretty wide margin, 20% or so. Massachusetts is locked in by 20% going to Haley. And Michigan is not as tight as it was when I was looking at it a while ago. Whitmore has an advantage of maybe eight percentage points. New Mexico is not close either. Grinsome seems to be ahead by eight percentage points as well. Minnesota is not going in the favor of Republican Jensen, down by 30. Oklahoma has declared for stint. And as I mentioned earlier, Oregon has not called in. Our last three main ones, Pennsylvania, Shapiro, the Democrat, is winning by 13 points. In Texas, no surprise, Abbott is up by nearly 10 percentage points. And in Wisconsin, it's running about a six-point difference between Evers and Michaels. So we'll see how all of these pan out. There could be some red mirages. There could be some blue mirages in some of these different states. Just depends on which cities they're counting first, and then also whether they have mail-in ballot policies such as Arizona, Pennsylvania, or some of the other states. All right, well, thanks for listening to this rant. Sorry it went a little bit longer than I thought it was going to, but hopefully if you're listening to this, this gives you some insight as to what was going on. And hopefully this will be a little time capsule moment that we can look back on when everything's decided or maybe even the future and have a little bit of middle of the election when the tension is still high, when people are still battling it out. We can still have a a record of what was going on and the opinions that are getting thrown around from both sides. All right. Thank you for joining me on this special episode. There are going to be no links to any news articles in the description today, but my Twitter link will still be there at your daily flip. And that's in the description below that like and subscribe button. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe.
Don't die.